Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. We are going to have a lesson in logic today, how to deal with mockers. We're living in a world that is steeped in sarcasm and snark, and it's everywhere from our children's programming all the way to the furthest corners of the internet. How can we, as followers of Jesus, avoid falling into some of these traps? Stay logical, my friends. We're going to talk about it on today's podcast. I'm sure it's happened to all of us where you will post a personal thought or opinion or an article or a quote, and inevitably somebody from the far corners of the internet will find your post and throw up some kind of snarky meme or snappy one-liner comeback or sarcastic comment. And I think it's important as believers, as followers of Jesus, that we learn how to interact with that type of communication because we are called to be salt and light in the world, and we are not called to stoop to the level of making fun or mocking. And so today we're going to talk about how to deal with mockers. And the reason that it says it's a logic lesson is because one of the surefire signs that someone doesn't have a good argument or a good rebuttal or answer to something that someone else has said is that they will stoop to mocking or sarcasm or you know some kind of shallow meme. That, that's actually a sign that you've made a good point because they don't have anything to really come back with to interact with the actual idea you've presented, but rather they just have to kind of lower themselves to a personal attack or name calling or something along those lines. And so as a point of logic, there's a logical fallacy called ad hominem. 
ad hominem basically is just what I said. When somebody doesn't have an argument or they don't interact with your actual argument and instead they attack what they perceive to be a flaw in your character or they say you're just ignorant or it's some kind of a personal attack with name calling. Some examples of this might be if somebody were to say, you're too young to understand, or you couldn't possibly understand because you're from this part of the country, or you're from this background, even up to outright name calling. Uh, and there's some less obvious kinds of ad hominem attacks where someone will avoid interacting with your point and rather point to your credentials or what they would perceive to be your lack of credentials. So they might say, you're not qualified to give a theological opinion because you don't have a PhD. And that's not to say that we don't use the scholars. I, I get my information from a broad range of sources. I love to read the scholars. I take seminary classes. I, I try to, uh, you know, get my information from good sources, but at the end of the day, one PhD is going to have a set of evidence and interpret it in a different way than another PhD might interpret it. So they disagree with each other. So we can't just say because someone has a PhD, they're, they're automatically correct about something that they're saying. And I love what J. Warner Wallace wrote. I think it was in his book, Cold Case Christianity where he talks about how the American system of law is set up. So basically, you have some sort of crime that's committed, and a jury is brought in. But who is the jury? The jury is the peers of the person who's um, accused of the crime. But they bring in, both sides will bring in expert witnesses. So the expert witnesses are kind of like our scholars and our uh, professors and and the people who write the books and, and all of this. These are our sources. These are our expert witnesses. But at the end of the day, even in court, when it's somebody's life is on the line, the court doesn't put the decision into the hands of the expert witnesses. Who decides the outcome? It's the jury the jury of peers, people who aren't necessarily qualified in uh, these specific areas of academia and expertise, but they actually process all of the information they're given from these different sources, and then they come to a conclusion about what they believe happened. And so it's the same with all of us. You don't have to be a theologian to have theological opinions. You don't have to be a scholar to, uh, to have beliefs about what the Bible says or what uh, some historical event that, that happened. So I just think that's one point to begin with because when we're interacting, a lot of times those ad hominem attacks can knock us off our horse a little bit and we don't quite know how to come back with that. So the best way to deal with that type of a snarky comeback is just to keep the person focused on the claims you've actually made. So if you say something about your opinion on some theological point and somebody comes back with sarcasm, you might just say, hey, you know, was there an actual point that I made that you disagreed with? And, and see where, you know, that goes unless it's so mocking and you don't want to answer at all, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So I have an apologetics blog, and anytime you have a blog where you're putting information out there that you're saying is true, like an objective truth, we are living in a world that is steeped in moral relativism. So people are automatically trained by their culture 
to reject any kind of claim where you're saying, you know, this is absolutely true. Because in our culture, we're trained to say, well, your opinion's as valid as mine. And, you know, if you're talking about flavors of ice cream, I'm on board with that. Sure. If you think chocolate's the best and I think vanilla's the best, we're going to just agree to disagree on that. And that's cool. That's our opinion. But when it comes to matters of objective truth, objective truth exists within reality, whether people believe it or not. And so even though it's countercultural, it doesn't change the fact that reality is a certain thing, whether or not we believe the truth about reality. So we have to learn how to interact with people that will do some of these kind of illogical things. And today we're going to specifically talk about mockers, because this is something that I encounter on my blog quite a bit. Uh, I try to publish every comment, you know, whether somebody agrees with me or not, but, uh, you know, if something's just a personal attack or, uh, and there's no argument in the comment, I generally, I'm not going to approve it, but I've learned a lot by reading some of these comments. And uh, it's caused me to really think a lot about how followers of Christ can interact with people who are really just mocking and snarky and uh, sarcastic in their tone. So I think the first person we need to look at is Jesus, uh, because I think all of us can be tempted to come back with a snarky comment. If I'm honest, I will tell you that sometimes I read some of these comments and I think to myself, oh my goodness, I I mean, I think of literally the perfect uh, win the internet response, (laughs) at least in my mind, I think. And and I I have to hold myself back. I have to rein it in. I have to let the Holy Spirit muzzle my mouth. (laughs) And I choose instead to pray. Now, I don't always do this perfectly, but in theory, this is what I try to do. Uh, In fact, I will actually, from time to time, scroll through the comments on some of my blog posts and pray for people by name who have left comments that uh, are either agree or disagree with me. I pray for everybody. And I think that is a really good way to, number one, keep my heart right and to also uh, keep in mind that these are all people that God loves and that, that Jesus died for. And hopefully, as we share our opinions about our faith, the goal is to win the person, not the argument. And that is something I think we have to continually remind ourselves of, is that we aren't, we aren't in the world to demolish people, but the Bible says we are to demolish arguments. So it's the ideas that we go after, but it's the people we're hope, hopefully trying to bring in and rein in. So We're going to get into some scriptures about people in the Bible who endured mocking and and how they handled it, but I want to tell you a little story before we get into all of that. I have told my personal story many times. Uh, I've told it in podcasts. It's on my website uh, in the video section if you want to take a look at it. I've even given bits and pieces of it in blog posts here and there, so I'm not going to rehash it, but to put a long story short... My faith was challenged intellectually, and it sent me into a really dark night of doubt. And the image that came into my mind when it happened was I felt like I had been thrown into an ocean of doubt, and I was sort of treading water, trying to keep my head above water, trying to keep my faith intact, but I didn't see anybody around that could help me. And I had been presented with all of these intellectual attacks on Christianity, 
And I did not at the time know that there was anybody who had even heard of some of these arguments or that could answer them. Uh, I, I didn't know that there's actually a flourishing uh, intellectual history within the Christian church that is highly intellectual and has thought through these things for 2,000 years. And so I, I, I prayed and I asked the Lord to send me a lifeboat. And that's the image that I had in my mind. I needed somebody to at least present an opposing view so that I could look at all the views, think critically about it, and figure out what I thought about things. And so when I discovered apologetics and theology, church history, I just began to study, study, study. And it was like a lifeboat to me. So when I started my blog, I prayed and asked the Lord that my blog would be like a lifeboat. So every time I write a post, every time I record a podcast or a video, I imagine that I'm sending a lifeboat out into a very confused world. And it's my prayer that I know people aren't going to like my lifeboat, but there are going to be some that are drowning and they're going to be happy to, to, you know, receive some truth on something that they had a question about, or maybe that can help pull them into the boat and bring them back to shore. So that's, that's the heart behind my posts and my podcasts. And I think that's a good image even for all of us as Christians to keep in mind that when we're interacting with people, we're wanting to send out lifeboats, not bullets. And that's something that I try to keep in mind. So we're going to look at Jesus. Now, Jesus was really a divisive guy. He certainly labeled people. He called people names. And so somebody might say, well, Jesus did it. You know, I can do it. But we have to look at the tone and the spirit behind what Jesus was doing. And that was very different from the mocking tone that generally lies behind a snarky comment on the internet. For example, when Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, he was dead serious. He meant that. He, of course, he was using poetic language, but the idea behind the poetic language he was dead serious about. He wasn't just trying to rally a bunch of people together to laugh at these silly, ignorant Pharisees. It was a warning, and it was sobering in tone. So even though he did use some name calling and things like that, we have to understand that the tone of it was righteous. And I, I, that's, that's a really important thing to remember when we look at some of the almost the harsher ways Jesus dealt with people when he walked here on the earth. So it's an interesting point that many of God's people in the Bible endured mockery. And if you share your faith publicly, if you share your faith online in any way, you will be mocked. It's going to happen. And if it hasn't happened yet, you know, you might be hiding what you believe because there are going to be some people that don't like what you say. But if you are being mocked, if you have endured some of this, I want you to know you're not alone. And many of the people in the Bible all throughout the history of the world have endured mockery. So let's look at some of these. But before we do, I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, predictions from the New Testament that this is going to happen. Like we can expect this. Uh, recently, I've been studying the epistle of Jude. And it's interesting that almost the whole uh, thing is dedicated to helping warn Christians to spot false teaching and to avoid false teaching. And so Jude was very concerned with this. 
And uh, he says in, in verse 18, but you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ said. They told you that in the last times, there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. So in, in Jude's case, he was saying these mockers that they were dealing with were motivated solely from wanting to keep their sin. They didn't want to be convicted of their sin. They loved their sin and they wanted to live their lives. Their sole purpose in life was to satisfy those ungodly desires so they would lash out with mockery uh, to, to Christians. And then, of course, in 2 Peter 3.3, it says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, again, following after their own lust. We're seeing a theme here. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? So in, in this case, these mockers were basically saying, yeah, your Lord said he'd come again. Well, where is he? You know, nothing's changed. And there was just this tone of mockery. And so... Um, the, the theme of mockery is really all over the Psalms. We could do a whole podcast just on mockery in the Psalms, but I just picked out a few for us to look at. Psalm 22, 7 says, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. And it's interesting. I think it was Tim Keller who said, a sneer is not an argument. And I would also add that name calling is not an argument. Mockery is not an argument. At its foundation, you know, there's false motives there, but it's also, we have to remember, a logical fallacy to just come back with mockery that doesn't have to do with the idea that the person has actually presented. Psalm 35 says, but at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing like godless jesters at a feast. They gnashed at me with their teeth. Those who sit at the gate talk about me. I am the song of drunkards. My goodness, can you imagine being the song of drunkards? Psalm 80 says, You make us an object of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Recently, I, I received an email from an atheist who told me that, you know, he just finds my posts hilarious, and he and his atheist friends pass them around and just have a great laugh amongst each other, and they giggle and... You know, I thought, well, you know, I'm in good company with the psalmist. And so, well, you know, I pray for him. But anyway, so moving on to Second Chronicles, this is in reference to God's prophets. Second Chronicles 36, 16. So when God would warn his own people about their rebellion, they would simply mock the prophets. And here's what it says. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. And that is so sad to me because in this case, we're not talking about surrounding nations mocking God's prophets or pagans mocking God's prophets. We're talking about God's own people mocking his prophets. Can you imagine if you are one of those prophets and you're going to the people who are supposed to be the ones that love God and follow God, and they're the ones mocking you. And so I think it's extra sad, even in my experience, when the mockery and the sarcasm comes from those who would call themselves our brothers and sisters in Christ. That, that sort of adds an extra layer of sadness to it. And of course, the prophet Isaiah had some pretty strong words for mockers. So let's take a look at Psalm 119. Scholars aren't totally sure who wrote Psalm 119. 
Uh, it could have been David or Ezra or Daniel. Uh, many scholars are pretty satisfied that it was David. I tend to think it was David. And the whole psalm, in fact, it's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. It talks about the word of God and how the word of God gave the psalmist comfort. And he he's sort of talking about the law and how much he loves it. And then in verse 51, he says, the arrogant mock me unmercifully, but I do not turn from your law. I love that. He's, he's essentially saying that the word of God means more to him than the approval of man. And if this was David, this is the attitude of the guy that was called the man after God's own heart. And I think that that is an attitude we can all learn from, that the word of God would mean more to us than the approval of man and the approval of whatever dominant philosophy is ruling our culture. So uh, Job was another guy that endured a lot of mocking, and I, I don't know why this verse kind of cracks me up a little bit, but it's like he's answering with a little bit of his own uh, sarcasm, but he says in, in Job 21.3, he says, bear with me that I may speak, then after I have spoken, you may mock. <laughs> so he's basically saying, let me have my peace, then you can have at me. Uh, then in Job 30, verse 9, he's talking about people that used to honor him, people that used to respect him and esteem him. And he says, and now I have become their taunt. I have even become a byword to them. And I can't imagine the pain of that uh, that was heaped on on top of all of that Job was going through at that time. Then there's Jeremiah, a young prophet who was really in a lot of ways a tormented soul. He, he really suffered greatly for the cause of God. And he says, I have become the laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me for the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. So in Jeremiah's case, the, it was actually the word of God that heaped all of this reproach onto him. It was because of the truth of the word of God. And again, this was coming from God's people. These weren't outsiders or pagans. These were God's people that we're heaping reproach onto Jeremiah because of the truth of God's word. And I think we can take a cue from Jude and Peter and, and kind of deduce that it's because they love their sin. They don't want the truth. They don't want to be convicted of their sin. So they would mock and make him a laughingstock. So also we have something in Lamentations. Now, tradition ascribes Lamentations to Jeremiah. Many scholars believe he wrote that. I tend to think he wrote it. And he says this in, in chapter 3, verse 14, I have become a laughingstock to all my people, their mocking song all the day. So they, it's like they literally wrote songs about mocking Jeremiah. And I, I, again, can't imagine what that would feel like. So let's move a little bit into the New Testament. Uh, the book of Acts, right from the start, at the day of Pentecost, the birth of Christianity, they were mocked. And it says in chapter 2, verse 13, that when they began to speak in other tongues and preach in other languages, some people received it, but then it says, but others mocked them and said, they are drunk on new wine. 
Another example from the books, book of Acts is Paul in Acts 17. Now, this chapter is a chapter that apologists use all the time to make the case for doing apologetics. It's where Paul famously reasoned with the Stoic philosophers and um, used some amazing apologetics tactics to reach them with the gospel. But he, when he started talking about people being raised from the dead, it says this, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So I think we can learn a great lesson there that even though some people are going to mock, some people are going to make fun, some people are going to want to hear more. There's going to be somebody that's going to receive what you said. And so I think if we keep that image of the, sending out the lifeboat with everything we do, then somebody's going to get in the boat and somebody's going to try to sink the boat. It's going to happen every time. And so we can't just try to please everybody because it's not going to happen. But if our motivation is, is for the souls of people to fulfill the Great Commission, then we're going, somebody's going to get in the boat. And that should be our prayer and that should be our heart. So finally, let's look at Jesus. Now, Jesus endured mocking like no one else. Now, I'm just going to read this from Matthew's account. This is when Jesus is predicting his death and what's going to happen, and he's talking to his disciples. So he says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So it was significant enough to Jesus to mention in this prophetic utterance that he would also be mocked on top of all of the other things he was about to face. It was significant enough for him to mention the mockery. And then the fulfillment of this, I'm going to read from Luke in, in chapter 22. It says, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who's the one who hits you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. And then, of course, Jesus received a crown of thorns that was placed on his head. And, of course, that was incredibly painful physically. And so many of us Christians, I think we're almost even a little bit detached from that symbol and also the symbol of the cross because both of those were, um, they, we see them as symbols of victory but they were symbols of scorn in the ancient world. And in this case, when they put that crown of thorns on Jesus' head, they were mocking him. That was the tone. That was the heart behind it. it was like, oh, you think you're the king of the Jews? Well, here's your crown. And it was an act of mockery that we need to remember that. And then in Matthew 27, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, it says, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with these same words. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's not only getting it from the chief priests, again, the people who are supposed to be following after God are mocking God himself on the cross. And then the robbers on either side of him are uh, joining in and piling on. So 
I want to end this with sort of three practical steps that we can take, three things that we can learn from how God's people endured mocking and how they dealt with mocking in their time. And so I would say that number one with mockery, tell God about it. Pray, pour your heart out just as the psalmist did. In fact, a great thing to do is just go on Google and Google mocking and psalms, and a bunch of psalms will come up, and you can you can sort of relate with the attitude that this psalmist has, and they're they're pouring their heart out to God about all of this mockery that they're enduring. And so I think that's that's number one is to pray. It keeps our hearts right, keeps our motives right, and it keeps us in close connection with the Lord. So number two, this is important: keep telling the truth. Don't stop sending out lifeboats of truth and hope and life. You know, for some people, what's truth and hope in life for us is going to be the stench of death. The Bible says that. It says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, and to some it's the stench of death. Or rather, it actually says we are the stench of death to some who would encounter our message. But to us, it's life and hope. And so just remember that you send out that lifeboat of hope and truth, knowing somebody's going to get in the boat. Somebody's going to get in the boat. So keep telling the truth. And we can remember from the story in Acts at Pentecost, some, uh, no, I'm sorry, this, uh, back to Paul, when Paul was reasoning, reasoning with the philosophers, some mocked, but some wanted to hear more. Some tried to sink the boat. Some got in the boat. And then finally, number three, don't answer a mocker. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to defend God with mockers. You just really don't have to respond at all. And for this, we're going to take a look at the Proverbs. Another great thing to do would be Google mockers and Proverbs because the Proverbs are filled with thoughts about mockers. And so One thing we need to bear in mind when we read the Proverbs, and this is just a little side note, we've talked before in other podcasts about hermeneutics, which is the study of interpreting the Bible. And when you're interpreting the Bible, you have to consider the genre of whatever book you're reading and the context, the cultural context and the surrounding context and how it relates with the rest of scripture. So Proverbs are ancient wisdom principles. And a lot of Christians misunderstand the Proverbs as promises of God. Now, you don't want the Proverbs to be promises of God. And I'll give you an example. In Proverbs 15, it says, whoever hates reproof will die. And if that was a literal promise of God, we would all be dead. Because at one point in our lives, we've all, you know, not received correction well. And so we have to bear in mind that these are more general principles of wisdom. These are principles that uh, are generally true in their spirit and in their theme. So some Proverbs about mocking, uh, Proverbs 9-7, he who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. I think we saw that proven true in some of the other verses that, that we read about when men of God dealt with mockers. Uh, Proverbs 29.8 says, scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. 
uh, and even in Proverbs 3, 34, it talks about God's attitude towards mockers and scorners. It says, toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. So the opposite of mocking would be humility. And that's something for us to remember as we interact on the internet and in our lives, that the, the humble way is going to be the way that God will give us favor. So we need to pray and humble ourselves before God when, when we're interacting with people. Uh, and this is another Proverbs 15, 12. A scoffer does not love the one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. So basically, I think the gist here from the Proverbs is that uh, we shouldn't answer mockers. It's, it's just going to heap more insult. It's going gonna, it's gonna to inflame the situation. And in that case, we really just don't need to answer the mockers. In fact, it's interesting that when Jesus was mocked in his trials and things, as far as I can tell, he never answered a mocker. In fact, famously, when he went before Pilate and he said to Pilate, all who love the truth, hear my voice, uh, or all who are of the truth, listen to my voice. Pilate's response was, and what is truth? And you can almost just hear the snarky undertone of that. And there's no recorded response from Jesus. It's almost as if, now I'm adding this, but it's almost as if Jesus was like, have it your way, you know, that, that go right ahead. You can believe what you want. And uh, so I think it's wise to remember those three things. Number one, pour your heart out to God, pray, tell God about it. Number two, keep telling the truth. Don't stop sending your lifeboats out. And number three, you don't have to answer a mocker. And so let's end with, with Jesus's words. Now, this is a promise of God. This is a promise Jesus left us with in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he also said, and this is another promise, that in the world you will have tribulation. But then he said, take heart, be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. So pray, tell God about it, keep telling the truth, don't answer a mocker, leave the mockers in God's hands. listening to this podcast and would like to sign up to receive my blog posts and podcasts by email, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button. Or you can simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.